Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So there probably is no set of motifs and tropes in the American mind, in the American collective consciousness, uh, that's more persistent, more prevalent, uh, more inescapable than everything that we associate with the Western, right? That's You could grow up missing other kinds of American tropes. You can't miss that one. I mean, you absolutely will know, uh, know about it. And it permeates so many different things. I mean, it's even the way we described the Internet when it first started to happen, that it was the Wild West. It was the frontier. It was uh, a place where you could go and and test yourself out in ways that maybe you couldn't test yourself out in civilized society. Uh, it, it never goes away. It's there in, very, in much of what we project onto certain political leaders. Um, it's there in our culture. The Western never really seems to die out. Uh, whether it's uh, Deadwood on HBO or uh, Justified uh, or No Country for Old Men. There's even um, going to be a revival in October on HBO of Westworld, which explores um, another frontier, artificial consciousness, but entirely using Western motifs. So today on the show, we're going to talk about why, you know, why and what. Why is the Western so ingrained in us? And, and what does that really mean? What does it mean to have the Western ingrained in us? In many ways, Westerns are just really good at narrating almost any narrative. But I think it could be argued that they have sort of a proto-narrative that they either hew to or decide to depart from. We're going to talk about all of that with people who know a lot more about it than I do. Richard Slotkin is a cultural critic, historian, and the Olin Professor of English and American Studies Emeritus at Wesleyan University. He is the author of Gunfighter Nation, The Myth of the Frontier in 20th Century America. Uh, he's joining us by phone, as is David Robel, a professor of history at the University of Oklahoma, author of Global West American Frontier, Travel, Empire, and Exceptionalism from Manifest Destiny to the Great Depression. Listening in but not joining us until the next sex, uh, uh, section of the show is uh, Mark Harrison, professor of film and performance studies at Evergreen State College in Washington. That's when we'll get to talking with him and one other guest about what we really see in the Western when we watch uh, Westerns on, on the movie screen. And Richard will be part of that conversation as well. But um, Richard, maybe we can just say that when we when we evoke the term the Western as an idea, we're really talking about uh, a culture that develops around the American West over a pretty small window of time, right? It's kind of a 40-year period that we're looking at. Well, yeah, I'm, there's, I guess there's two ways to look at the chronology here. One is to say if, if, is to look at the Western as a distinctive form of, uh, of movie making or, or genre. And that really is uh, it, the, 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 the version of the, the American history that they're looking at is basically a 40-year period from about 1850 to about 1890. But the thing about Westerns is that they're, they're not just a, a, a movie genre. They're also the vehicle for a myth of uh, American history, which goes back way before uh, the invention of movies and continues to the, to the present. And it's the myth that really sees the United States as the product of uh, a, a, a continuous process of westward expansion in which 
what we call civilization or settlement, is continually pushing into new territory, lawless territory, uh, territory rich in untapped natural resources. And through the process of conquering that territory, uh, we create uh, the United States of America as a, an exceptionally rich, uh, presumably democratic, um, uh, and heroic society. And we'll talk as we go along about how closely that myth does or does not resemble the historical reality. But then it kind of makes sense, Richard, that it would be 1850 to 1890. I mean, we've seen what a depiction of, say, 1825 looks like. I think that's roughly the time period of the Revenant. It's not about the things that you just talked yeah. about. It's about somebody basically trying to dis- survive in, in an essentially uh, climactically and, and uh, interpersonally hostile landscape. Yeah, I know. The, I think the uh, the key thing is uh, why did the movies focus on this forty year period? What was there about that period that made it such a, a a brilliant choice for visualizing something about American history? And in a historical sense, that period of development is the one in which industrialization and the development of a an international of a, a interstate uh, transportation network begins to play a part in the settlement. It's really the era of railroad building. Yeah, and, uh, and maybe we can add David in right yeah. right there and say, uh, I mean, the, the railroad's key, right? The ra- railroad's is literally and physically and geographically our way in, also our way in as a matter of imagination and consciousness. Sure. The, the railroads play a big part. I, I would actually push the chronology back uh, a little further. Um, it the the Mexican-American War places the United States in possession of what we think of today as the West. So that's a tremendously important moment, so the late 1840s. Uh, and, of course, you, you use the date 1890, and 1890 you know, resonates so much because it's the, the date when the Census Bureau announced that it would no longer be mentioning the term frontier, that it could no longer see a discernible – there was no longer a discernible line of frontier settlement so the the Census Bureau would stop using the term frontier, and there was a sense uh, in the country, and this is something that uh, that Richard has written about uh, a good deal, a sense that something significant was being lost, that uh, uh, if the frontier had been a tremendously important shaping force for America, if it had helped shape American democracy and created a, a particularly individualistic uh, nation uh, and also... Uh, help create a, a kind of enhanced sense of American nationalism, then what would happen to those things in the wake of the, the, the frontier's passing? If it had been the wellspring of so much that was positive and benign, would uh, the United States start to look like uh, Europe, heavens, you know, heavens forbid, uh, in the wake of the frontier's passing? There's another level where we could move the chronology back much, much further, because uh, the revolutionary period you know, is about many things. The the desire to separate from, from Britain is about many things. But one very important thing is that Britain is restricting the movement of uh, of its colonists on the Western frontier. And uh, British settlers in the West want to move West. Uh, the British government doesn't want that to happen. And there's tremendous frustration that the, the British government opposes uh, expansion in that uh, very early period. So you know, while I think that that period from 18, you know, late 1840s to 1890 is tremendously important for the formation of the mythology of the West, the idea of the West as the place where America would find itself as a nation, where it would become a nation, 
that idea was pretty well developed by the revolutionary era, and you have uh, people like Thomas Jefferson uh, writing in, in 1787 that the country is going to remain virtuous uh, so long as it's chiefly agricultural, and that's going to be so long as there's vacant land in the West. But when the West gets filled up, the nation will become corrupt uh, as Europe is corrupt. That was the great fear from the late 18th century, and it was one that was and being fully realized in the late 19th century. Although, Richard Slacken, it seems to me frontier can have at least two psychological meanings. One of them is, you know, that notion of this incredibly wild uh, and untamed place where you go out to test yourself. But the other meaning, and the meaning that maybe becomes a little bit more pertinent in that period we're talking about, say, late 1840s into 1890, the frontier is also the place where you can go and get stuff. You can get stuff that wouldn't be accessible to you uh, back in settled civilization. You can also exceed the, the boundaries that class is already beginning to exert on you if you're trying to have a life in Boston or St. Louis or someplace that you can there, there are suddenly these natural resources that are available, whether it's wheat, whether it's gold, whether it's just land. There's that kind of frontier, too, where you, the person with a whole not a not a whole lot of means can go and get stuff. And Richard Slack, and I feel that's one of the things that that fuels our understanding of that time period. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Uh, and just to sort of connect with with uh, with the the earlier point, all, this notion of, of 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 remaking yourself and remaking your fortunes by going into new territory, as I it said, is does go back to the beginning of, of really of the American settlements. But the game changes in the 19th century uh, because you're connect because that that gaining of of wealth and position is now connected to these commercial possibilities. So in the in the let's say the the, the early 1800s, uh, Abe Lincoln's father goes west, and basically all he's looking for is a subsistence farm that he can get and maintain at a cheap price. By the time you get to the 1850s, 1860s, uh, you're thinking the, the the possibilities of the West take on what I call a, a form of bonanza economics, and that's the idea that you're not simply going to get a subsistence farm, but you're going to you're going to get something magnificent for a fairly low outlay of, uh, of capital. The gold rush is the, the obvious thing to, to cite here. Uh, go out there with a pick and a spade, and you become a, a millionaire by digging gold out of the ground. But throughout the, the 1860s and 70s, there are a series of bonanzas uh, that are promoted by people who are selling either Western land or selling the, uh, the, the government on building railroads out uh, to the far west. You've got a wheat bonanza. Uh, you've got uh, uh, especially the range cattle bonanza, which was really at its height in the 1870s and 80s. And it's from actually that particular bonanza that the Western movie uh, took, its, uh, took its, its, its imagery. And I think the, the, the key point there is that why, why, why do movie makers pick a, a particular piece of this grand story of frontier development to make imagery out of, to make stories out of. And I think it is that, that this cattle range era is right on the cusp of shifting from an agrarian America, essentially agrarian America, to a mechanized commercial industrial America. So that you look back at this heroic moment in the past and you see the germ of the present and the fights that are played out in these Western movies are like a battle for the American future, which we know is going to be commercial and industrial. 
Um, so, uh, David, there's kind of a secondary industry that piles on top of the kind of bonanza economy that Richard's talking about, and that's the the sort of a travel tourism and, and marketing industry. There's a whole group of people who become very invested in the idea, and they're you know not incidental to the railroad industry, um, right. who, who are saying, yes, come here, move here, move around out here, experience all these things. Well, what are these things? And at that point, David, they start telling stories. Right, right. You see a, a, a massive pile of printed promises being created from everybody from uh, individuals who are there in place in parts of the, the far west and desperately want other people to come there and join them, to uh, local town booster organizations, to uh, state level uh, and sometimes uh, you know multi-state level uh, immigration bureaus, and then uh, the railroads themselves, uh, creating all kinds of p- uh, posters, pamphlets, uh, booklets that are widely, widely distributed all across the country. And these printed promises are designed to get people to move out to the West by presenting the West in a particular kind of way. And that is as a frontier of, of opportunity, right? a place where opportunity still exists, but absolutely not as an actual frontier. So uh, you see, by you know, by the 1860s and 1870s, uh, land promoters in the West and the railroads are, are expressly emphasizing that this is not a frontier that you need to conquer. Uh, this is a place that's already a new West. It's already settled. It's already civilized. It's already full of churches, uh, full of schools, uh, full of all the comforts and conveniences that you need to make a smooth transition from wherever you happen to be in the east or in a city in the Midwest uh, to the far west. This is easy work to come west. Of course, it's, it's not easy work. And <laughs> you have you know, a, one promoter writing uh, about Wyoming in 1877 saying, come to Wyoming. It's absolutely not a frontier. It's nothing like a frontier. And, of course, the year before, the Battle of Little Bighorn has taken place in uh, the territory next door. So the point for the uh, the promoters of Western lands is to present uh, the present as if uh, the future's already arrived. So uh, we, I wish we had time for all of the myths and all of the ways in which this story kind of misleads us about uh, the the moment itself and the, the years to come afterwards. We don't. But there's some things that are worth kind of pausing over. And so, uh, Richard, one of the myths that comes out of this whole thing is is kind of the myth of the American gun and the gunslinger and the six shooter and the straight shooter uh, and, and the, the person who, who settles scores that way and, and the, the notion that efficacy, American efficacy, efficacy solving a problem is embodied in in having a gun and knowing how to use it and one of the startling realities is the, the, the American West during the time period we're talking about was probably safer from the point of view of your likelihood of getting shot than many American cities have been over the last 30 or 40 years yeah the uh, crime rises with with population density and uh, it, it, it was probably more dangerous to live in the, the so-called Five Points district of, uh, of New York City than it was to be uh, in, uh, in Dodge City. But, um, uh, and when, when, you, when we, the, the, the language you just used to talk about it, you know, the, is the language of, of, of the individual picking up the gun. Uh, the violence of the West is less of a, a matter of individuals fighting duels 
then it is a kind it is a, the kind of social violence that occurs when you have uh, economic interests and political interests clashing in a situation where there's a good deal of money at stake or power or land, uh, but no laws to really regulate human behaviors. So in the period, uh, you know, uh, you'd probably be more dangerous of getting challenged as an individual in New York, but in the far west, you've got in uh, in the uh, 1860s, 70s, right through the 90s, you've got a series of very violent Indian wars uh, in which hundreds of people are, are killed on uh, on both sides. Uh, you also have, uh, as competing interests develop in a lawless area, range wars between uh, competing groups of ranchers uh, or between uh, uh, people representing ranch interests as against some other kind of interest, uh, uh, sheep herders, homesteaders, uh, or um, uh, merchant bankers uh, versus... Uh, versus uh, uh, Cattle, uh, cattlemen. Uh, you've also got uh, uh, later on in the 19th century a considerable amount of labor violence uh, as uh, the uh, gold mining uh, districts and coal mining districts of the uh, Rocky Mountains uh, become commercialized and industrialized and the prospector gives way to the mining company. You've got a terrible series of what are actually called labor wars. Uh, in Colorado and the uh, uh, Rocky Mountain, uh, Rocky Mountain area, um, so uh, the violence. The, 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 it, it's correct to associate the West with violence. We got to bear, keep in mind the difference between the violence that the Western movie features, which is the the, the six gun confrontation in the streets, and the social violence where social orders are uh, and interests are clashing with each other in a lawless environment. It is interesting as you read the newspapers from that period from those places, there's a lot of talk about gun control. You know, either we've got oh, yeah. it or we need more of it or no guns inside the city limits. And even the, the ranchers, the, the people who were making a lot of money from livestock, it wasn't really in their best interest for cowboys to go into town and get drunk and shoot at each other. So they were utterly opposed to this entire way of life that we see yes. romanticized. Yeah, uh, that's true. And, and what you have as the alternative to that is what, what is uh, properly called vigilantism which is the organization of, of a private force, uh, usually with money behind it, not always, but usually with money behind it, to enforce the law in a situation where regular law enforcement either doesn't exist or is completely corrupt. And vigilante violence, of all, you know, just a huge variety of types of vigilante violence, marks Western history throughout the period, and it runs all the way out to San Francisco as well as in the, the Rocky Mountains. So, David, there's a way in which everything that we're talking about is also braided into the notion of American exceptionalism, the idea that that somehow this thing happened, that we expanded into this area. We usually leave out the extirpation and relocation uh, of people who had been living there prior to our arrival. And, and th- this is a story that's evoked over and over again. We'll hear it repeatedly during this uh, presidential and, and political season that that America is a shining city on a hill. It's really special. And it's really special because of some of the things that we're talking about now. Maybe you can uh, help us understand how that link gets forged. Sure, sure. So, you know, American exceptionalism as a concept is a, 
is a is an old one, but it's one that I think is is particularly tied into the the concept of manifest destiny that's articulated in uh, the mid 1840s. And and this is an idea that uh, the nation will be spreading democracy. Uh, thus, uh, the people coming into contact, indigenous peoples coming into into contact with an advancing American empire. Uh, are being brought something that they ought to be uh, pleased about uh, rather than resist. So democracy is a part of it. It's also the idea that providence is behind this, that this is a divinely ordained uh, process, that the United States needs to be doing this. It's its duty and its destiny to do it. So the idea that the nation is not doing anything unnatural by expanding, but it's literally growing into its divinely ordained skin. It's just becoming what it's supposed to be. But then there's one other factor that's important in that uh, concept of manifest destiny as it develops, and that's the demographic element. Uh, so John L. O'Sullivan, when he articulated the manifest destiny concept in the mid-1840s, talked about uh, the free uh, development of our yearly multiplying millions and the idea that the United States population was increasing at a rapid rate, which was true, the, the fertility rate for uh, America in the 19th century, uh, particularly the first half, is quite remarkable. Uh, and of course, heavy uh, immigration of people from Europe coming into the country. Uh, this sense that those yearly multiplying millions deserve the space uh, on the Western frontier, not uh, the indigenous peoples that are there. So you have the use of terms like uh, scattered races, uh, you know, wandering tribes, uh, these terms that suggest that these these are not the kinds of societies that should be developing there. That if you have free, freely yearly, multi, uh, sorry, uh, you have multiplying millions of democratic-minded people, then they need to take precedence uh, over those people in place. So, American exceptionalism is a concept that really starts to take root in the wake of the Spanish-American War, and uh, you know, in a sense, you could say that it, it, it's it's distinctive, right? The idea that America. Uh, is unique in its process of conquest. It's an empire of liberty, not a, an empire in the traditional sense. But, you know, then again, every nation has developed its own kind of version of national exceptionalism to uh, provide, uh, you know, a, a kind of framing for, you know, its, its expansion. Uh, but in the United States, maybe, maybe one of the differences is that, you know, this is a white settler society uh, that uh, is also a society that's gained independence at the time that it begins its, its expansion. Uh, so I think once you move to the end of the 19th century, the end of this, this period that, that we're talking about of the shift from an agrarian to an industrial uh, nation, those fears uh, begin to increase that uh, the nation is losing its resources, the nation is losing its frontier distinctiveness, wilderness is uh, diminishing, uh, and now, you know, the, the, the fear is that America will lose those qualities that have made it exceptional. All right. We're going to have to grab a quick break here. When we're going to come back, we're going to talk about, uh, in particular, the cinematic treatment of all those stories uh, starting in the, the following century. Uh, and we'll talk about how those myths get embedded in us. Stay tuned. This is the last cowboy song. The end of a hundred year wars The voices sound sad as they're singing along Another piece of America 
All right, we're back. We're talking about Westerns, perhaps fittingly. We're going to change horses a little bit, uh, and David Ravel is going to uh, sit back and listen. Mark Harrison, who's been sitting back and listening, is going to join us, professor of film and performance studies at Evergreen State College in Washington. Richard Slotkin, cultural critic, a historian, a National Book Award winner, and lots of other things as well, author of, among many books, Gunfighter Nation, The Myth of the Frontier in the 20th, in 20th Century America. Still with us, and in just a few minutes, you're going to meet uh, Sandra Osawa. She is uh, a member of a Native American tribe and a filmmaker and a poet who's focused a lot on Native American issues. Obviously, the way their story gets told in Westerns uh, has been a fluctuating thing, but uh, certainly has been a, a problem a lot of the time. But um, before we arrive there, and Mark, I'm going to have you kind of get us started. So uh, starting in the 20th century, we start um, I mean, obviously, the West has already been a source of entertainment in the form of Wild West shows and, and, and in the form of, of fiction and stuff like that. But, but somehow or other, West, the Western themes in movies seemed like just a, such a perfect marriage. So when we're talking about a Western, uh, when we're talking about that as a movie, what are we talking about? Well, uh, you know, the aspects of the genre that, uh, you know, we're all familiar with, the uh, you know, the iconography of the West, the frontier, uh, cowboys, Indians in a, you know, sort of classic Western sense. Um, all these things uh, are a fascinating way of thinking about both the time the Western was produced and the period of time that the Western represents. And what I've found with my students is uh, they have more of a perception of the Western as history as opposed to the Western as mythology. Um, See what you could mean I by just, that. Yeah, Go ahead, sure. Yeah. Uh, could I just backtrack? Because sure. I, I want to mention that I grew up in, just personalize this a little bit, I grew up in California in the 50s and 60s and uh, on a diet of Westerns. Uh, uh, the By the end of the 50s, almost 40 primetime television shows were Westerns and eight of the top 10 were the most watched shows on television. So I, you know, like uh, many people from the West, I grew up very much connected to that. And then later in my career, I was hired at the University of Texas in Austin as a guest artist and not really someone who was teaching film studies or the Western film genre. But I was absolutely fascinated by how the Western uh, identity uh, informed so much of what was around me in terms of fashion, in terms of uh, uh, the behaviors of uh, of uh, the native texans uh, it was a, it was a really fascinating thing and really got me interested in the western uh, uh as much as anything that i grew up with Mark, it seems as though any time we're telling uh, an American story, we can tell it as a Western. Uh, when film noir became, I, I was just, in fact, over the last couple of nights, Turner Classic Movies has been celebrating the work of Anthony Mann, who kind of specialized in the Western noir, where you know Jimmy Stewart is exactly that kind of morally compromised, uh, not necessarily heroic hero, uh, and 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 most of the many of the outcomes are dubious and dark. But but you make the point that you know when we wanted to tell various versions of the American story, we can use it. Uh, we can use the Western as a set of tropes and motifs. Uh, for example, maybe you can describe how Red River coincided with basically what America was co becoming during and after World War II. Yeah, Red River is one of my favorites, uh, both as a, a, a really extraordinarily uh, imagined and realized movie, but also one that uh, 
uh, is a, a real homage to uh, capitalism on the frontier, the conquest of, of the land, basically taking it from uh, the Spanish who, uh, according to the John Wayne character, took it from the Indians. And uh, and then we get what one of the familiar uh, aspects of the Western, which is its connection to the Civil War. The John Wayne's son has just come back from the Civil War after a, uh, a sort of 15-year montage. And uh, uh, Texas is uh, in disarray economically, and they don't have any place to sell their cattle. And it uh, becomes a, a, a story of uh, the growth of capitalism. Uh, it's... Uh, 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 a cattle drive of 11,000, a uh, herd of 11,000 that uh, are heading to uh, uh, Kansas, or, or Missouri rather, and uh, end up uh, at a railhead in Kansas. So it's a very much a celebration of American capitalism, uh, of manifest destiny, of uh, uh, the expansion of the frontier uh, by uh, the kind of uh, rancher who is a, a, you know, an American patriot. So, um, Richard Slotkin, uh, one of the things you did was to try to develop some some archetypes, some uh, people that we we meet in in westerns, some ideas that we meet in westerns. Uh, maybe just to sort of set the mood for this, uh, we can play uh, a clip from. Well, let's play a clip from Shane Betsy Kaplan. Uh, this is a, a little bit uh, from the movie Shane. All right, now put your arms on your side. Mm-hmm. Your holster's too low. Never have your holster at arm's length. Let me see you shoot, Jane. What do you want me to shoot at? A little right rock over there, see? Gosh almighty, that is good. Shane. Follow oh, Mrs. Stark. I was just teaching Joy how to do a little shooting. Guns aren't going to be my boy's life. Why do you always have to spoil everything? Bang! Bang! bang. Gun is a tool, Miriam. No better, no worse than any other tool. A gun is as good or as bad as the man using it. So, Richard, one of the uh, archetypes that that you've identified is is the town tamer, right? That there's yes. there's bad things going around around. Well, I'll let you I'll let you explain your archetype. Yeah, oh, what, look, the basic structure of the Western is that there's and it's the the Western is beautiful at visualizing this is the contrast between the realm of law, the, the realm of the settlements, the realm of the white woman and the realm of lawlessness or savagery, whether we're talking about Indians or, uh, or outlaws. And the hero is always uh, what I've called the, the white man who knows Indians or uh, the good guy who knows bad guys. Uh, he's, a, he's a guy on the border uh, who, could, who has all the skills of the bad guy, uh, and yet he somehow, for some reason, puts them in the service of civilization usually symbolized by uh, the white woman. And one of the things I love about the, the piece you just played, it, two things. First, he's teaching the kid to use a gun. And he has this thing uh, the, the, uh, that a gun is uh, just a tool that's as good or as bad as the man that uses it. Um, but the other is that uh, he's talking to Marion, who's the white woman and the mother of a little boy. And the kid says, you spoil everything. And the, other, that the, the, the wonderful thing about the Western is that the way it has it, its moral cake and eats it at the same time, mm-hmm. so that you're, the hero uses violence to protect the white woman and establish an order in which violence will no longer be necessary. But everybody is bored to tears by civilization and really into the dynamics, the violent dynamics by, uh, by which the hero wins things. 
so that's that, that, that's the main thing I see going there. But the other thing is is the other thing about the Western is uh, it takes the what do I want to say the patterns of social violence, which is to say the the the, the means by which society begins to establish a realm of law against those who would break the law, and it individualizes it. It brings it down to one man with his gun versus usually more than one gun on the other side, and lets him settle the historical conflict and establish the new social order through a singular act of violence. And the last point is that every Western, to be a Western, has to and has to climax, has to have the moral resolution through an act of violence. Um, maybe that's a, a good way to bring into the conversation Sandy Ozawa. Uh, she is a member of, I hope I'm saying this correctly, uh, she's a member of the Makah tribe. Is that how I say the name of the tribe? Yes, that's right, Makah tribe on uh, the West Coast. And a filmmaker, a poet, um, and, and focusing on Native American issues. She wrote and produced the 10-part series for NBC called The Native Americans. Um, Sandy, before I get you started talking, let's play a clip from one of the movies that has uh, treated Native Americans in some of the ways that uh, Richard and Mark have been talking about. This is from The Searchers. Well, we found him. Come in. The state of Texas is paying you 12 Yankee dollars a month. Now's your chance to earn it. We go charging in about sunup. Now make sure that Just every... a minute, Reverend. We go charging in, they'll kill her, and you know it. That's what I'm counting on. I know you are. Well, it ain't gonna be that way. She's alive and she's gonna stay alive. Living with Comanches ain't being alive. Better she's alive and living with Comanches and her brains bashed out. All I'm asking for is a chance to sneak in there and get her out before you come charging in. What if you get caught? Well, I don't tell him nothing, does it? Just I one man alone? No. You go right ahead, son. But at the first sign of an alarm, we're coming in. We ain't gonna have no time to pick and choose our targets when we do. All right, there's uh, Richard's notion that this is going to have to be settled uh, with an act of violence. But Sandy Osawa, uh, the essential quote-unquote problem here uh, is that a group of Native Americans have engaged in an infant abduction uh, and that uh, this story has gone on now for years. And and there's a dogged pursuit uh, of this young woman who's been taken away by the Native Americans. Um, So tell us kind of how it looks through your lens and, and maybe what they get wrong. Well, one of the interesting points is that uh, The Searchers actually was a uh, novel. Actually, there were several uh, novels that pointed to this very story and that what really happened was that um, there was a a battle. Uh, A young uh, white girl was taken uh, by the tribe, and then uh, many years passed, and uh, this young girl grew up, married into the tribe, had kids of her own, and... um, Finally, when the search party did find her, uh, the whole uh, emphasis was that actually it turned out that the hero of the story uh, indicated he would rather kill her now that she's been despoiled by uh, these savages. And so uh, the whole, uh, which was more of an accurate story, when they got there, the woman, of course, a white woman, did not want to leave because her kids were there. She had established life there. she preferred it there. There are many versions of these stories. I believe uh, Richard Flotkin refers to this as the captive uh, story that's so common um, among Native stories. But this, uh, the interesting thing about this, it was you could not tell the truth <laughs> in mm-hmm. film. You know, you had to, this was a Western, so you had to have this uh, 
this reversal of the opposite story, because how dare we? We could not suggest that Indian people uh, were something, uh, you know, more than savages. They had to be the savage um, um, bad people uh, for Western to exist like this. And so I always thought that was interesting, the whole twist on it, um, that the truth could not be told, told in Westerns. And I think that's probably still true today, that really with the Western, it's very, very difficult to tell the truth about Native Americans, it, it, um, I haven't seen it done, and I think that's really part of the reason why we were motivated to get involved, um, <clears throat> because we uh, every time we looked at something, whether it be on TV, the movies, there was really nothing relevant uh, that we could see to real Indian people. No humor, uh, no sense of philosophy, no religion, no depth, no multidimensional characters. And really, that's still the fact today. You know, I want to uh, I want to come back to that for us in just a second. But so, Mark Harrison, from the point of view of film studies, you know, The Searchers is you know, I mean, I don't know if you get a bunch of film studies people, professors, and critics and stuff like that into a room and ask them to make a list of the twenty greatest American movies. The Searchers is going to be on a lot of people's lists. So, as you teach that and kind of cross teach it against the history of the American West, what do you do with all that? Well, I think The Searchers is one film that contributes to the more complex cowboy figure. Uh, John Wayne's, you know, as he did in Red River, plays a somewhat psychotic, obsessed man. Um, but I, I, something that really fascinates me is, um, you know, we all admire uh, John Ford, and certainly The Searchers is considered, if not his greatest, one of his greatest films. But, you know, he never, um, he never used Native Americans, uh, even as his view of uh, the treatment of Native Americans becomes more uh, bleak as, uh, as he moves through his career. And, uh, I mean, that's one of the things that, as I watch The Searchers and, and uh and other films that are uh, attempting to portray Native Americans, it, it may have been an acceptable uh, practice at the time for commercial reasons. We have to remember that the Western is, in fact, a Hollywood genre, and it's one about making money. But it always, I found it alienating to watch these films uh, and and see Native Americans uh, maybe as uh, these aggressors, uh, as we see in Stagecoach, but never as real people. Um, well, Sandy, that's going to make you want to talk about Cheyenne Autumn, right? This is when John Ford, uh, Sandy, this is when John Ford, you know, perhaps a little bit stricken by pangs of conscience uh, here at the end of his career, decides to to do the thing that Mark Harrison wants him to do. Although, uh, Sandy, he doesn't get it quite right. Right. Uh, they premiered uh, Cheyenne Autumn uh, uh, very close to the uh, Northern Cheyenne Reservation, and um during the film, uh, and Cheyenne Elder was seated next to a white lady, and during the film, uh, they attempted to use a native language, and she had uh, whispered to him, uh, by the way, can you tell me what they're saying? And he said, no, ma'am, I can't. They're speaking Navajo. And um, so this was an example, basically, of his, uh, it was supposed to be his apology to native people, but... Uh, the very language that they used was of a different tribe. And, of course, uh, when you look at it, <clears throat> excuse me, they were dealing with a very important um, piece of uh, Northern Cheyenne history, which was uh, after the Custer battle, um, the uh, Northern Cheyenne and Sioux people were punished. So the Northern Cheyenne were, were sent down to Oklahoma, and um, they had a very... Um, 
um, bleak existence there in terms of the whole culture, the land, uh, the unknown. And so <clears throat> they began a battle back, a 1,500-mile uh, battle back uh, to their land at Northern Cheyenne. And um, the very uh, interesting in-depth story that I had the chance to research for the tribe and um, uh, was very disappointed in, in seeing this because, of course, they had a love story involved in it and uh, it was very watered down. So, again, it's just like a very important, a very strong um, moving, even heroic story uh, of one of our um, lives, uh, one aspect of our lives uh, was really dismissed and uh, made very small and irrelevant, and it was kind of a background which uh, I think is very true today is that we become um, the, the color, the color guard, uh, where the background noise, so to speak, but um, never really presented as real people, and I think it has a lot to do with... Um, what Professor Slotkin had mentioned in terms of the hero, the individual, because these Westerns have to revolve around um, an individual, a rugged individual. And, of course, that's the opposite of tribal life. In tribal um, life, it's the we that's important. It's not the I. Uh, And um, President Obama actually alluded to this um, a year ago. I was just looking back at one of my postings uh, on Facebook, actually, and it it talked about how President Obama had said, um, uh, we is the most important word in the Constitution. I found that really interesting as a Native person because that's exactly um, accurate in terms of what's lacking today is this whole emphasis on we. It doesn't just affect Native Americans, but it affects our country because when you become so I, isolated, it's very difficult to function as a democracy, as a country, uh, as uh, anything. Uh, and, and we are uh, at risk of being taken by um, clowns who come along and say very simplistically, I've got my uh, uh, my gun, I'm going to go in, I'm going to save the day. Uh, and I think this harks back to the very notion of this hero that it's a beautiful story, wonderful story. We're entertained by it. But we have to be careful not to be entertained um, by um, would-be leaders who are selling us the same thing. And you know, San Diego, that is going to perfectly set up our final segment here. Uh, we're going to grab a quick break here. Uh, when we come back, we will talk about how the story of the Western becomes the story of modern life. I know I have people to thank. Josh Nalea is the person who uh, conceived of the show. He's the producer of the show. We've got Betsy Kaplan on the board. I think we have Esther Shitu on the phones right now. Uh, lots of other people helped out today. Uh, but if I thank them all, we'll really be out of time. And we're running short on time. We're changing horses again. Uh, David Robel is uh, back in the conversation with Mark Harrison and Richard Slotkin. Uh, I want to just quickly uh, read from... Um, 
a piece that George Saunders did uh, in The New Yorker last week. Uh, uh, he traveled around with the Trump campaign, uh, going to a lot of their spots and is writing about Trump. He says, from the beginning, America has been of two minds about the other, a capital O. One mind says, be suspicious of it, dominate it, deport it, exploit it, enslave it, kill it as needed. The other mind denies that there can be any such thing as the other in the face of the claim that all are created equal. The first mind has always held violence nearby to use as needed, and that violence has in Used everything we do, our entertainments, our sex, our schools, our ads, our jokes, our view of the earth itself, somehow even our food. It sends our young people abroad in heavy armor, fills public spaces with gunshots, drives people quietly insane in their homes, and here it comes again. That brittle frontier spirit, that lone guy in our heads with a gun and a fear of encroachment. So Richard Slotkin, um, it sounds a little quite a lot above like what Sandy Osawa just said too, but in some ways, if you want to get to Americans, if you want to win them over, one way you can do it is to invoke all of these tropes that we've been talking about. Yeah, I think uh, that that's clearly the case. Um, it goes back to the frontier myth that we were talking about uh, in the first sentence, uh, segment, uh, in which basically if, you, if, if, if the Western movement is your metaphor for uh, how America progresses, then what you're doing is you're making a link between economic progress and a race war. Uh, against of whites against non-whites, essentially uh, Native Americans, later on Mexicans, and so on, and in a certain sense against African Americans as well, since slavery is a is a kind of product of war, um, and, and so that is the that is the basic part of the myth. Uh, now, the the way it gets played out in in the modern period is that occasionally you will still get that notion that if we're going to progress, we have to get rid of the savages. Uh, depending on the time and place, the savages, uh, well, let's say in the, uh, in the 19th century, the end of the 19th century, uh, freed slaves in the South and immigrant workers uh, coming from Europe, but also from, uh, from China and Japan, they're spoken of as, as savages uh, and that they have to be not exterminated, although that word is actually used in some cases, but subjugated that is put under, under the rule, under the thumb of, of whites, if, if progress is, is, uh, is going to exist. And one of the reasons why American labor history has been so violent, uh, or was so violent right up uh, really until, the, 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 uh, until World War II, is because of this idea that, that uh, in the name of progress, violence is, uh, is licensed. And then there's a there's a sort of a, a, a sort of a subhead under that, and that is uh, the the notion that uh, you know capitalism involves a certain amount of creative destruction. Uh, that is, in order to create the new technology and the new the new business, you have to destroy the old business or the or the uh, the old uh, technology. And we're a little too eager to embrace the inevitability of destruction and a little bit too reluctant to deal with uh, those who are affected uh, by the destruction on the grounds that, you know, hey, the Indians lost, it's their tough luck, um, uh, and the, the, uh, the losers in the economic struggle have lost in the struggle. The unprogressive people fall behind and the progressive ones go ahead. The, uh, the big lie, of course, is that white people are the ones who always go ahead. And we're seeing right now that that's clearly not the case. 
that uh, that whites are as much the victim of creative destruction as anyone else. So, Mark Harrison, I mean, sometimes we don't have to use our imagination about this. We had in 1980 a president who'd been a movie cowboy. Uh, and uh, we certainly have had other presidents who've tried to kind of twang that wire a, a little bit, uh, including George W. Bush, who we saw on a stage in Dallas yesterday with President Obama. There, there's that notion, anyway, that this is still a, a little harmonica you can play and, and, and even win an election. Well, that's, uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And something I had been thinking about uh, uh, in the during the George Bush years, have, as I mentioned, I lived in Texas for a period of time, was uh, the interesting uh, presentation of his, his uh, persona, uh, which we all know was primarily Eastern, uh, Kenny Bunkport, uh, Yale, Harvard, uh, Phillips Academy. And somehow this guy ends up with a Texas accent. And uh, that, uh, you know, someone who's directed a lot of plays and opera, uh, that kind of uh, uh, verbal uh, uh, presentation of self uh, has a whole range of uh, implications, and especially, uh, you know, as it relates to the, the cowboy ethic, as it were. Um, we're going to have to stop here. All of you guys have been fantastic. You've had really interesting things to say. We're just out of time. Um, I've got about a minute left. I'll just quickly tell you a story, which is that uh, back in the 1980s, I wound up in a hotel room with uh, with Roy Rogers and his son, Dusty, and his longtime manager, Art Rush. And uh, I asked him about Ronald Reagan. And he said, well, I don't really think of Ronald Reagan as a Western actor. He said, you know, I mean, every once in a while when his career wasn't going so well, he'd make a Western movie. And his manager, Art Rush, perked up and said, Roy, I don't think you want to say that. I don't think you want to say every time Ronald Reagan didn't know what to do, he made a Western. Uh, and so Roy, he smiled and he said, I just, that's why I can't be a politician. If it's a bottle with three rings around it, and I've got to say it's a bottle with three rings around it. Anyway, thanks so much to everybody who helped out today, to Betsy Kaplan, to uh, Josh uh, Nalea, who conceived of the show and booked all these terrific guests. And thanks to these terrific guests as well.